One of the things we learned last evening, one of the things I personally find fascinating, and I hope that you do too, is that Jesus Christ is the one true original, the one true God, and yet there is this antichrist power that wants to stand in the place of God and counterfeits the truth of Christ. Okay, And we've noticed that the ministry of Christ Remember, began when he came up out of the water and lasted for three and a half years, at the end of which he received a deadly wound, but his deadly wound was healed, and in his place he sends the Holy Spirit to draw all men to himself. Amen? Now, we notice that the counterfeit Christ, the Antichrist, has a counterfeit, if you want to use the word ministry, his coming up out of the water, this, of course, prophetically, see, the coming up out of the water Time, times, and half a time, or three and a half prophetic years of ministry. Then you have a reception of a deadly wound. Then the deadly wound was healed. And then he has a power, the Antichrist accomplice that we studied last evening, who would raise up at the end times to try to, instead of convicting the world, coercing the world into following the beast from the sea, the Antichrist power. So if you've come night after night, hopefully everything I just walked through, you were familiar with. If what I just told you right there was like, (laughs) go back, listen to the CDs, take a look at the study guides and follow along. But tonight we're going to build on our previous evening's message, the Antichrist's accomplice, and we're going to see one last counterfeit that the Antichrist tries to pull over on the world in a message entitled, The Mark of the Beast. But before we begin any study of God's Word, what do we need to do first? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another day of life at all, and thank you for bringing us safely here together. And Lord, if there are those still on their way, give them the safety as well and efficiency to get here so that your message can be heard and received by all who have ears to hear. And now, Lord, as we turn to these precious pages of Scripture, these prophetic messages that you have for us tonight, Help us to understand what the mark of the beast is. And Lord, more than just understanding intellectually, help us to have a commitment not to receive the mark, but Lord, to be your people, come what may. Bless us and keep us faithful, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 7. Of course, the entire series is entitled The Keys of Revelation, and definitely one of those key concepts is that there is a mark of the beast. You've probably heard about it. You might have even heard some rumors about it that, uh, boy, I tell you, let me, let me give you a little example. I was in the, this literally happened just a few weeks ago. I was at the uh, Secretary of State's office, the Department of Motor Vehicles. I was in line for, I don't know, two, three, four years, it seemed like. And uh, when I get up to the front of the line, uh, I'm registering a trailer or whatnot, and they hand me, you know, they just have a random pile of plates, right, in a sequence and order, and I get a plate that has some letters, and it has three numbers at the end. Believe it or not, 666. Literally happened to me. The lady working at the desk pulls out the plate, and she said, mm. <laughs> She said, I don't know about this, you know. And I said, honestly, that would be, I would probably get a lot more attention because I'm actually a pastor. And when I roll up in a church with 666 on, I don't know what's going to happen there. And uh, 
And she said, maybe you should have another one. It's like, well, whatever you'd like. So she went and switched it back. So I have 667 on my (laughs) trailer at home. But it is interesting that the the kind of urban legends and old wives' tales about this mark of the beast, oh, the number 666, or you might have heard about barcodes, you know? Some of you might have been like a little weary. Oh, there's a key tag that's in these meetings. This is the mark of the beast on plastic. You might have heard of a credit card. You might have heard about biological chip implants and these kind of things. Or they're all going to be, they are going to be watching us or they're going to be watching me. And we kind of have this paranoid state. Is that what the Bible describes as the mark of the beast? That there's going to be a system where everyone is laid down and injected with some sort of thing or tattooed with a mark or a barcode or a credit card. Is that what the Bible is talking about? Or is there something that we're not understanding? Let's see what the scripture itself says. Now, before we get into the mark of the beast, I want to show you a second or a different, or should I say, an original mark, but not of the beast, but a mark of God that's talked about in the book of Revelation. Go to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, we'll just start with verse 1. Revelation chapter 7, starting with verse 1. We read, after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, pause right here. Does the earth have corners? No. But they're obviously holding some purpose, but the language here is symbolic, right? Holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. So there's some destruction that's going to happen, but God is holding it at bay, And the imagery here used is four angels holding back the four winds so it won't blow on the earth. Then it says in verse 2, I saw another angel. So you get the picture. There are these four angels in the image here holding back these four winds of heaven so the earth is relatively calm. Whatever destructive power of these winds that's going to blow is being held at bay. And then he sees another angel, verse 2, Ascending from the east, having the what? Seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. So apparently when they let go, there will be harm to the earth and the sea. Saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have what? Sealed the servants of our God on their, what? Foreheads. And what's fascinating to me, when people pick up the book of Revelation or talk about end-time events or Bible prophecy, you hear about the mark of the beast. But the mark of the beast is simply a counterfeit of God's original identifier, the seal of God. So apparently God has a seal. And you're asking me, what is that? Is that a barcode? Is that a chip implant? Let's... Wait and see what the Scripture says about this, right? But there's the destruction that's coming, pictured as four angels holding like these four winds, but before that destruction is let loose, God says, I have a people that I want to identify as mine. Put on their foreheads the seal of the living God. Now I want to put that in your mind before we go to the mark of the beast. Because you'll notice that the mark of the beast is simply a counterfeit of the true seal of the living God. Because that's 
Satan's modus operandi. He wants to counterfeit all that God does and all that he is. And so it should be no surprise that if God has a true identifier, the seal of God, that there would be a counterfeit inside the book of Revelation. Which brings us back now to last night's Revelation chapter 13. Let's go to Revelation chapter 13 and see the counterfeit to the seal of God. Now we noticed, just for quick review, Revelation chapter 13 describes two beasts. How many beasts? Two. The first one comes up out of the what? Sea or the water, right? The second one comes up out of the earth or the land, right? Revelation chapter 17 told us what seas or waters means. It means people, humanity, nations, tribes, tongues, peoples. Where the earth then is a place of relative uninhabited land, a relatively new world, if you will, right? And in Revelation chapter 13, it describes the time of this first beast, the beast out of the seas, reign is 1,260 years, tying in beautifully with what we saw in Daniel chapter 7, that there would be this little horn power, this antichrist power that, lo and behold, come up out of the sea in Bible imagery and have a ministry, if you will, an activity time of 1,260 years. Of course, at the end of that 1,260 years, it would receive a fatal wound, We saw that both in Daniel and in Revelation 13 specifically. But after that, in Revelation 13, it says that his deadly wound was what? Healed. And that a second beast, this one coming up out of the earth, would rise at that time to help him do his bidding. So we turn to Revelation 13, verse 11, looking at this second beast, which again was the burden of our study last night, just for review. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a what? Lamb and spoke like a dragon. Of course, we noted the interesting juxtaposition between lamb, which always represents Jesus Christ, and the dragon that always represents the devil, Satan, right? And this power, though it will speak like a dragon, emerges as a very lamb-like in its horns. It's two principles. It's to, you know, freedom of religion, freedom of, uh, of conscience, if you will, you free a country without a king and a church without a pope. It's a beautiful place. But notice what happens in verse 12. And he exercises all the authority of whom? The first beast. And that's the beast that came from the sea, right? In his presence, so at the same time as this one is operating, This one is operating for him and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to do what? To worship the first beast. So the objective is to get worship, not for itself, but for the first beast, for the Antichrist power, whose deadly wound was healed. So after 1798, during that time, it would rise with a purpose to hold up and promote that first beast. And it goes on to describe what the second beast, the beast from the earth, would do in order to get people to worship the first beast. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. 
By the way, you notice something. Satan only has two weapons, and only one of them works. Okay? He has two weapons, and only one of them works. The first weapon, the only effective weapon that he has, is deception. But when that doesn't work, he takes off the gloves, and that's it. He's just going to go for outright persecution. But what you notice is every time God's people are persecuted, they stand up under it, or they die faithful, and Satan loses his prey. His only truly successful weapon is deception. So you'll notice always, whether it was in the original war in heaven or down here on earth, he doesn't like take off the gloves and like challenge God to a fist fight or try to lead people away by saying, I am Satan and I will. No, 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 no. He's a smooth talk. He appears as an angel of light. He does nice, smooth things to try to reel people in. And that's exactly what we see here in this second beast of Revelation 13. And it says in verse 14, And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Okay? So you get this picture now. Follow the sequence. The dragon, which is Satan, has his representative on the earth, the Antichrist, but the Antichrist has a power that's working in its behalf, this beast from the earth. And the beast from the earth has influence over the whole world, and its goal is to get everyone to worship this Antichrist power. So he sets up what the Bible calls an image to the first beast. Something in its honor that by worshiping this image, you would be worshiping the first beast. And of course, by worshiping the first beast, you're really worshiping Satan, which is what Satan has wanted all along. So he creates a structure, which by the way, God deserves our worship. He's the only true God, amen? But he has a representative on the earth, Jesus Christ, yes? And when Jesus leaves, he has a representative for himself too, right? The Holy Spirit, right? There's a trinity, all one God, but three different persons. What you see in Revelation chapter 13 is a counterfeit trinity. Satan wants to stand in the place of God. He has his representative, the Antichrist, and the Antichrist has a power that's working for him to draw all people to himself. It's fascinating. But we continue. Still in Revelation 13. Verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. So it's not just a little image, but it has some, you know, you you make a rule, but if it has consequences, it has teeth in it, right? That this little image is not just an optional thing. Apparently, it's got power to enforce this worship, right? This image worship. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many who would not worship the image of the beast to be what? So now we've moved from deceiving people into false worship to outright persecution. The ultimate being death. Then he goes on to say how he's going to actually make this enforcement come about. Verse 16, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a what? Mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Now, let me ask you a question again. Has God, does God have a mark or an identifier for his people? Yes, we already looked at it. It's called the seal of the living God. Well, in 
counterfeit style, of course, counterfeit fashion. If there's an original, there's a counterfeit. And Satan says, no problem. I'm going to have an identifier, a mark of my people. So the beast, that first beast, right? This is where we call it the mark of the beast. It's the Antichrist mark. Verse 16, again, he causes all small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And notice that these three items seem to be interchangeable. The mark of the beast or the name of the beast or the number of his name. But it's an identifier to separate these are my people who choose to worship me versus those who have the seal of the living God and choose to worship him. Also, you'll see all throughout the book of Revelation that the critical end time issue is exactly what it was at the very beginning. Who's going to be worshipped as God? The one true God or the counterfeit Satan and his Antichrist? You'll see that this is a theme all the way through the book of Revelation. Now, it's interesting it says here. Now, we focus on the number, and yes, it does say, here is wisdom in verse 16. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. And sometimes I believe people have said, aha, all I have to do is avoid that sequence of three numbers, that 666 in a row, and I won't have the mark of the beast. Friends, let me tell you something. Yes, you can apparently calculate the number 666 from this, but there's something greater at stake than just merely avoiding the sequence of 666 or all, bar, all, all barcodes or something silly like that. Okay? Notice what it says here. It's the mark of the beast. It denotes loyalty to the beast. Okay? Or the name of the beast. Or the number of his name. Now, another thing that's a key in Revelation, if you go to your worksheet here, what's in a name? There, there is a great, how do we describe this? There's a great rift between those who have the name of the true God and the name of the counterfeit God running through the book of Revelation. For example, look at Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6. We'll go through these rather quickly, but I want you to see that it's in your Bible too. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6. I'm sorry, this should be 16. Be good Bereans, find out when I've made a mistake. Revelation chapter 19, verse 16. Not verse 6, but verse 16. And notice what it says about Jesus. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a what written? A name written. And what is that name? King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ has a name written on him, a title emblazoned on him. I mean, a, a, a name emblazoned on him. Now go back to Revelation chapter 17. So Jesus Christ has a name emblazoned on him. Now look at chapter 17 and verse 5. This is describing the scarlet woman or the great harlot, which is another term for the Antichrist power. And lo and behold, if Jesus Christ has a name, so does the Antichrist. Look at verse 5. And on her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, 
the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. So they've got two names. Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords emblazoned on him. And on the Antichrist, there's also a name, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. So it's interesting, both key characters have names emblazoned on them. Now look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12. We're going to see several examples of this one. So God's true followers have his name written on them. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12. He who overcomes... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. That was an interesting, by the way, that the the name on the great harlot was Babylon. It was a city. Now he says, I'm going to put a name on you that denotes loyalty. It's the name of God in his city, the new Jerusalem. It's fascinating. Which comes down from God, out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. So Jesus Christ has a name on him, and he says, if you're my follower, I'm going to put my name on you. And it has your location. You belong to the New Jerusalem, where apparently the other one belongs to Babylon. Interesting. Now notice this. Well, let's see this again. It comes up several times. Go to Revelation chapter 14 now. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1. When it describes the faithful of God, those who have received the seal of the living God, notice what it says in verse 1. Then I looked and behold, a lamb, which the lamb represents who? Jesus Christ, standing on Mount Zion. This is a picture of triumph once the victory is won. And with him, 144,000, having his father's name written where? On their foreheads. Now remember, the seal of God was going to go on their foreheads, right? So apparently, in God's identifier, the seal and the name are the same thing. It's basically saying, this one is mine. Putting the stamp of approval, if you will. Well, notice now again, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 4. This is repeated once again. It's a theme that runs throughout the book. Notice the victorious redeemed. Look at verses 3 and 4. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall what? By the way, if you have a servant that doesn't serve you, he's not your servant. Right? Serve is the root verb there, right? We'll, We'll hang on to that for later. There are many people who claim to be a servant, but if you're actually doing what you're told to do, you're not a servant. You're something else. You're not a servant. Notice it says, And his servants shall serve him. Verse 4, They, that is the servants, shall see his face, and his name shall be, where? On their foreheads. Repeatedly, there's this identifier of God, the seal of God, or his name emblazoned on their foreheads of those who are faithful, those who overcome, those who are her servants. God's people are, if you want to use the word, marked with the seal of the living God. But now watch this. Much the same way, the followers of the Antichrist have a name written on them too. Revelation chapter 13, verse 17. Notice what we see here. 
We've already seen it before. Verses 16 and 17, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the what? Name of the beast or the number of his name. So God has a name. Jesus Christ has a name. And that name is on his faithful. The seal of the living God is, denotes faithfulness to God. Satan has a name. The Antichrist has a name. And he puts it on his people. The mark of the beast is simply the counterfeit seal of God. Is that being clear so far? I want to make that clear. Now, watch this now. Back to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 6. The Antichrist blasphemes the name of God, does not like the name of God, sees it as an enemy, and says bad things about it. Look at verse 6. Then he opened his mouth in what? Blasphemy against God to blaspheme his what? His name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And just as the Antichrist does, the Antichrist's followers do. Look at Revelation 16 and verse 9. During the seven last plagues, the, what, the, those plagues, by the way, are what the four angels release upon the earth. But he says, before that happens, let's seal the servants of our God with their name in the forehead, right? But now those who go through these seven last plagues, notice what happens. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not what? Repent and give him glory. They don't repent. They're unrepentant. They're unfaithful. These are the wicked. And in their rage against God, they blaspheme his name exactly like the Antichrist power does. Now notice, contrasting that, they may blaspheme the name of God, but look at chapter 15 and verse 4. Those who are faithful to God, instead of blaspheming the name of God, they glorify the name of God. As those same plagues are being poured out, they cry out, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Fascinatingly enough, I, f- I find this just tremendously interesting, that as the seven last be- plagues are being poured out, the righteous... Say glory to the name of God, and the wicked blaspheme the name of God. They're unrepentant. It's as if to say, even if the Lord gave them a chance to repent, they wouldn't because their character is set. They're who they're going to be. Thus, Christ could remember it back several lessons back at that judgment before the coming of Christ. He says, let those who are holy be holy still, and those who are wicked be wicked still. There's a distinction. Some will have the name of God inscribed in their forehead, Others will have the name of the beast. Now, again, you're thinking, well, what does that actually mean? What's in a name? Why is the name so important? Well, what does a name mean? Let's go to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. You recall, well, in fact, we'll go to 33. We'll just give just a little bit, a little bit more context to this. In chapter 33 of Exodus, Moses 
ask God for a great, tremendous favor. He had a big request of God, and it was found in verse 18 of Exodus 33. He says, please show me your what? Glory. Now look at verse 19. Then he said, I will make all of my what? Goodness pass before you. And notice what he says. And I will proclaim the what? The name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Notice there seems to be an inference here that's made, though it's implicit here, becomes explicit in the next chapter, but that the name of God is tied to his character of graciousness and compassion. It's who he is. Now notice in Exodus chapter 34, verse 5, when the Lord actually granted the request of Moses. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and did what? Proclaimed the name of the Lord. So whatever we're about to read is what the Lord proclaimed. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Now pause right there. He just said he proclaimed the name of the Lord, so here's what he actually proclaimed. Here's the words that came out of his mouth. The Lord, the Lord God... Merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And notice what the response to hearing the name or the character of God proclaimed is. Look at verse 8. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and did what? Worshipped. The Lord himself proclaimed his name, and he didn't just say, here's the consonants and the vowels and the right amount of syllables to say my name, pronounce my name. No, no, no. Which there are many people in the Christian world who's like, oh, no, no, the name of God is this. If you, if you just get the construction of the letters just right, the Friends, the name of God is who he is. It's his character of goodness and mercy and beneficence and justice. He is love. And he says, that's whom I am. That's my name. And to have that name in your forehead means that you have become like your God. Let me show you this from Scripture. Go to the book of Exodus. Oh, you're already there. Handy enough. (laughs) Exodus chapter 13, then back up in the book of Exodus to the left to Exodus chapter 13. And you'll see a repeated theme throughout the instructions to ancient Israel about the word of God and their faithfulness that he expects of them. And notice what he says in verse 9 about the commands of God that were articulated in the verses before it. He says, it shall be a what? Sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, which is up on your forehead, right? Right here is in your forehead. That the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Now think about that. It's not the only time we see it. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to flip the next two scripture references. You want to put a little 
arrow back and forth between those two. We're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 first. It's to the right, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting with verse 6. Well, let's start with verse 4. I always do that. There's more text that we can chew, okay? But let's start with chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, this is a proclamation of the Lord again. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And notice what he says now. Verse 6. And these words which I command you today shall be in your what? Heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a what? A sign. Where? On your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now obviously what the Lord meant by this was to take the concept of me being one God who is gracious and merciful, who is love, and you shall love the Lord in return, and that should be on your hearts. It should be a part of who you are. And it shall be a sign between you and me. Look again, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1. When God gives these words, when He gives His commands, He wants them to go deep down inside and become part of you. Not just a thing that you hear, but something that you do, that you are a participant in. Deuteronomy 11, verse 1. Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep His charge, His statutes, His judgment, and His commands always. You will see a continuous construct in the Bible connecting love with keeping the commandments. He says, you will love the Lord your God, and that will be demonstrated in your faithfulness to the law of the Lord. Love and law are combined. He says, love the Lord your God, and the law is simply a transcript of my character, and I want that to be in you. I want you to think about it. I want you to recite it to your children. I want you to talk about it. When you get up, when you lie down, I want to be part of who you are. I want to write it on your hearts. And he symbolically talks about it being like a sign on your hand or on your forehead, between your eyes. This is the original seal of God, long before the book of Revelation even picks up on the theme. God has always wanted an identifier for his children. It's love that is manifested in obedience. Notice now, still in chapter 11 of Deuteronomy, this time verse 13. And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your soil, and your oil, I'm sorry. And I will send grass in your fields for your livestock that you may eat and be filled. Take heed to yourself, lest your heart be what? Deceived. And you turn aside and what? 
serve other gods and do what? Worship them. Notice he's saying, keep, love the Lord, keep his law, and it will maintain that relationship so you don't drift off, be deceived, and begin keeping other statutes that I have not brought, and end up worshiping a God who is not a God at all. Again, verse 16, take heed to yourselves lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Mm. And then look at verse 18 again. Therefore, because you don't want that to happen to you, you shall lay up these words of mine where? In your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes eyes. This idea of God seeing in his people faithfulness demonstrated is not a book of Revelation concept. The book of Revelation simply picks up that theme and incorporates it into its prophetic language. That when you read in Revelation chapter 7, the four winds being held back, wait, there's going to be a people who are going to be sealed with the seal of the living God on their foreheads. Does that mean that they're going to have a tattoo on their foreheads? No. It means they're going to love the Lord their God and keep His commandments. Very clear. In fact, uh, by the way, you're, you, can, you can see this in Scripture several different times, but in a little fill-in-the-blank there at the bottom of your study guide, Your forehead represents your what? Your thoughts, your mind. Your hand represents your actions, your behavior, what you do. Right. The Lord wants you not only to think about Him, but to execute. Not just to be hearers of the Word, but to be doers of the Word. Right. That's what He's looking for. Now I'll jump ahead to a script. If you'll notice, Satan doesn't care... (laughs) If you really love him or not, he just wants obedience. For instance, when he met Jesus in the wilderness of temptation, I don't think he expected Jesus to really think that Satan was the creator and worship him. He just said, just bow down and do it. (laughs) I don't care if you're convicted. I work on coercion. I just want to force. You'll notice God never forces himself. He always says, if you love, then you keep. Satan says, I don't care if you love or hate, just do it. There's a difference. One is true love. The other is absolutely not. Let's turn over to the back side of our study guide. Commandment keeping is the ultimate sign of loyalty. You know, you notice this, even in the Christian world, regardless of a person's profession of faith, the proof is in the pudding, as they say, right? Do your actions actually correspond to your profession? Do you walk the talk? It's one thing to say it. Remember the book of James? He says, you may say you have faith, but show me your works. Let me see that it's true. Commandment keeping, loyalty to God's law, is the ultimate evidence of love for God. I'm going to say that again. Commandment keeping, faithfulness to God's law, is the only true sign that you really love the Lord. Let me show you some scripture for that. Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. I'm sorry, 6, verse 16. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. 
a simple principle is expounded, is explained, that I think bears study as we look at tonight's topic. He starts in, well, let's start in verse 15. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? You know, there's a branch of Christianity that says, well, yeah, I mean, now that I'm saved, now that I'm under grace, I can do whatever I want. Slow down. The Apostle Paul's response to that rhetorical question, certainly not. Absolutely no way. And then he lays out why. Do you not know? As if to say, this is just common sense. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to what? Obey. You are that one slaves whom you obey. Now, you may claim to be Christ, right? But if you're actually doing the will of Satan, that profession doesn't do you anything. Notice what he says here. Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. You're either going to be obedient to God or you're going to be obedient to God's enemy. You're either going to be faithful or not, loyal or rebellious. The bottom line. Notice Daniel chapter 9. We've seen this chapter before, but do you recall his prayer? That beautiful prayer when he's given repentance for his sin and the sin of his people, as he saw the time of their exile in Babylon coming to a close, and he was afraid that the Lord would extend it because of their continued unfaithfulness. Notice what Daniel says. Daniel chapter 9, and look with me at verse 4. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who do what? Love him and with those who keep his commandments. You'll notice that there's always from the very beginning this continuous construct of love and keeping the commandments. Love God, keep the commandments. Jesus would bring this up, John chapter 14 and verse 5. I'm chapter 14, verse 15, I'm sorry. Very simply, Jesus says, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. If you really want to be mine, if you're really truly a Christian, you'll follow my teachings, my commands, my laws. If you love me, keep my commandments. And in fact, the same author later in 1 John, towards the book of Revelation, the same author of Revelation, in his letter, 1 John, says it this way. Chapter 5, 1 John, chapter 5, and verse 3. For this is the love of God. This is what it means to love God. That we do what? Keep his commandments. And I love that he adds that second sentence. And his commandments are not what? Burdensome. Now you might hear, oh, you can't keep all of God's law. It can't be done. It's too high. It's too lofty. You can't be perfect. You can't do what God asks you to do. But according to Scripture, his commandments are not burdensome. I would imagine it's because the Lord is going to be in you, helping you through the power of his Holy Spirit, right? He says, if you love me, 
you will choose to keep my commandments and I will be faithful and I will help you, but the demonstration is in faithfulness. Which brings us to the seal of God. What is the seal of God that Satan wants so desperately to counterfeit? Well, in ancient times, a king's seal in a signet ring was his signature. If you wanted to sign a piece of paper, you didn't necessarily pick up a quill and write out your name. You had a seal. You had a symbol that represented you. And you wore it around either on your body somewhere or even on a ring or something like that so that when it came time, if you wanted to put your mark on something to say, job done, seal it up and finish, you'd sign it with your signet ring. It gives you a couple quick examples of that. Esther, chapter 8, that's page 475 in your pew Bible. In the book of Esther, you see the use of this signet ring as a signature for the king. Chapter 8 and verse 8. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's what? Name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So there's the name and a seal that makes that permanent. Right? That is set apart as the king's. It's a permanent law. It's a permanent something or other. You see the same thing in the book of Daniel. There's a story we just simply don't have time to, to go to, but Daniel is at one point thrown in a lion's den for his faithfulness, was he not? And how did the king close that door into the lion's den? He sealed it with his ring. Look at chapter 6, verse 17. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Right? It demonstrates a permanence in the name of the king by putting your seal on it. Now, what is the seal of God? Now, any seal at its most basic element contains three different things, three elements contained in the seal. It's in your worksheet, your study guide there. A seal contains three elements. The first thing is the name of the person, yes? The next thing is the title of that individual, the position that that person holds. And third is the territory. The name, the title, and the territory. The name, the title, and the territory. My mother, for many years, was the dean of a school of anesthesia. And she had little business cards. She didn't wear it around on her necklace or a ring or anything like that. But it, it was a, a calling card for who she was, right? And uh, it had those three things. It had her name, Mary DeVazier. And it had her title, Dean. And then her territory of the Middle Tennessee School of Anesthesia. Name, title, territory. Very simple. Everyone who has that. You have a name, you have a title, and a territory. Now, Previously, we've seen that God's signature of a completed work is Sabbath rest. Did we, talk, did we cover that already? Yes, indeed. Remember six days, the Lord labored and did all his work, but on the seventh day, he did what? Rested. And that when it was completed, he said, then the Lord blessed the seventh day and hallowed it or sanctified it. He set it apart as his. 
the great work of creation was accomplished in six days and sealed with the signature of God, his Sabbath rest. The same thing we saw in the work of redemption, both accomplished, creation and redemption, through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He did all of his work, and he was executed, and then he rested on the seventh day, according to the commandment, and then he picked up his work again on Sunday morning, the first day of the week. Anytime God completes a work, he signs it with his signature, his seal, which is Sabbath rest. Now, how appropriate is it that there's one commandment in the entire Ten Commandment law that incorporates God's name, his title, and his territory? It's his seal. Anybody want to take a guess? (laughs) It's the fourth commandment. Remember the what? The Sabbath day to do what? To keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of whom? It does not say of the Jews. And it does not say your Sabbath day or a Sabbath day. It is the Sabbath day of the Lord your God. Now, it's fascinating. You have the title, the Lord, I mean, his name is the Lord your God. His title is creator, and what is his territory? Heaven and earth. The Lord your God, the creator of heaven and earth. The seal of God. Thus we see in Revelation 14 and verse 7, God's faithful people, his last day remnant people, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7, are depicted as an angel crying out to the world with a loud cry. And look what it says in verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has what? Notice this is in historical context. They are not any longer looking forward to a future judgment. These people are living in the time when the judgment has begun. After the deadly wound was healed, the judgment has come before Christ returns. And they cry with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. So what do you do? Worship Him. The battle lines are drawn on this issue of worship. Worship Him. Now, who is Him? Him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. And again, we'll repeat it. The longest direct quotation from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation is right there in Revelation chapter 14 when it talks about worship Him who made. And it lifts the language directly from the fourth commandment, the seal of God. So God's people are going to be sealed with the seal of the living God, and they're going to be demonstrating their faithfulness to God by keeping His commandments. In particular, that one commandment that has His name, His title, and His territory. Lord God, Creator of heaven and earth. Worship Him amidst all the cries to false worship and counterfeit worship and worshiping the beast. There's one clarion call. Worship Him who made. And there's only one commandment in God's law that reflects God's creative power. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For in six days the Lord God created the heavens and the earth. 
powerful thought. And he rested on the Sabbath. So now we can transition to the mark of the beast. Now the mark of the beast is easy to discern. Once we identify what the true is, the counterfeit is easy to spot. Have you noticed that, by the way, that counterfeiters only counterfeit things that have an original? You will never find a counterfeit $13 bill. Why? There's no original $13 bill, right? That's easy to spot, right? What they do is they study the original and they make their counterfeit to look as much like it as possible so it won't seem, oh, it's no big deal, so it's basically the same. Everything that the Antichrist does is an attempt to stand in the place of God and counterfeit his true representative, Jesus Christ. And the mark of the beast is no different. Once we identify the seal of God, identifying the mark of the beast is a piece of cake. Once we see the original, the counterfeit is easy to spot. In the closing days of Earth's history, the world will be divided divided into only two groups, representing either the character of Christ or the character of Satan. That's what it means to have the name in your forehead. You've become like one or the other. You're faithful to one or the other. You obey one or the other. You love one or the other, regardless of profession. Christ said, many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord. And what will his response be? I never knew you. I mean, you sure you claimed the name, but you didn't do. You claimed, but you didn't keep. Regardless of profession, in the last days of Earth's history, their world will be divided into only two groups. Those representing either the character of Christ or the character of Satan. Everyone will have made their choice to serve Christ and keep his commandments or serve the Antichrist and keep his commandments. The commandments of God are the traditions of men. Same thing Jesus faced in his day will be the issue at the end of time. God says, here is my way. The counterfeit says, no, 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 here's the way. And I say, look, everybody's doing. Look, it's so popular. Look, it's so easy. No, no. God says, if you love me, keep my commandments. The final test of loyalty will concern worship. It runs all through the book of Revelation. You either worship Jesus Christ and keep his true Sabbath day or the Antichrist and his counterfeit Sabbath day. Something made in his image. Bottom line. And again, we could say, well, it's just, why that particular commandment? Well, even those who don't love the Lord or keep his commandments probably just know not to kill, right? It is probably a good rule of of thumb, honor your parents, and don't covet, don't steal. Those are good, practical, and they're part of God's moral character. It's who he is. But there's one commandment that stands alone as apparently arbitrary Except for the only reason we keep it is because God set it apart as holy and he said so. If you love me, keep my commandments. Thus he doesn't say watch for the Sabbath day. We covered this in a lesson before. The Sabbath day is not, you know, 25 hours long and the weather's not always perfect. An angel doesn't come down and say, oh, it is the Sabbath. No. Apparently our responsibility is to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. 
It's much like that test of loyalty at the very beginning of Earth's history. Well, why, Lord? That tree looks like it's good for food and it's pleasing to the eye. The only reason you don't eat of that tree is because he said, don't eat of that tree. Very simple. It's a simple demonstration of fidelity, of loyalty. Friends, it's not legalism. It's loyalty to the one who is our creator, Jesus Christ, the one who is our redeemer, Jesus Christ, to be sealed with the seal of God, to be faithful to him, to keep his commandments just because he said so. Despite Satan's efforts to deceive and coerce, a remnant will remain loyal to the Lord. Look in Revelation chapter 12 again, verse 17. You've seen this text several times, but notice what it describes about the people of God in the very last days of earth's history. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. The dragon, of course, represents whom? Satan. The woman represents the church, right? And went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. Apparently, there are some sisters or brothers of offspring of this church who are not faithful, but there are some who are. And they're characterized as those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Again, we're going to have a whole message on what is the testimony of Jesus Christ. But we know what the commandments of God are. The question is, do we actually keep them? Or are we just claiming the name and instead keeping the traditions of men? By the way, this whole setting up an image that the whole world will worship, that's not a New Testament concept either. Revelation took that directly from Daniel. Let's go to Daniel chapter 3 as we close tonight. A preview of what's to come. We notice that the seal, of, the seal of God will have the counterfeit in the mark of the beast. And there will be enforcement of the mark of the beast, eventually even on pain of death. We might think, oh man, the book of Revelation is so scary. Well, That actually happened to Daniel's friends, and praise God, it was recorded for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Daniel chapter 3, if only we could read the whole thing, I'll do my best to get the picture emerged here, but Daniel's three friends were, of course, resident in Babylon at this time, having been taken captive from Jerusalem along with Daniel. Daniel's not in this chapter, we're not sure why, but Daniel's three friends we know popularly as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were summoned before the king, along with all the other governors and provincial leaders like satraps and rulers and whatnot. And the king Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had made a great image made entirely of what? Gold. Now, Pause for a second. Let's review our Bible prophecy. Where did he come up with this idea of a great image? From his dream, right? Now, if you recall, was part of that image gold? Was all of it gold? No. What did the gold represent? He said, you, O king, are that head of gold. Your kingdom of Babylon. But he said, but after you will come another kingdom. And then after that one, another kingdom. I'm guessing King Nebuchadnezzar really liked that vision up till about the neck, right? But he says, I know what I'm going to do. I know that God had said this one and then this one, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. 
How about this? How about just Babylon from head to toe? And I'll set up this image on the plain of Dura and have everyone come and honor me. This is what we find in Daniel chapter 3. Look at verse 1 just very quickly. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width was 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, of course, they dutifully come together. And notice what happens in verse 4. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, that you shall fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Notice there's not a mention of a death decree yet. The first thing is an inducement through beautiful music. Everybody's there. It's super popular. Nobody wants to miss out on this. When you hear that music, you'll just naturally want to fall down and worship. But in case the carrot doesn't work, there is a stick. Now look what the stick is in verse uh, 4, I believe. I'm sorry, verse 6. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a fiery, burning, fiery furnace. And of course, everyone bowed down to that image as soon as they heard the music. Well, almost everyone, that is, except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, pause right here. Wouldn't it have been a marvelous time to tie your shoe? Right? But they don't even want to give a hint. They don't even want to blend in. They're going to stand for the right though the heavens fall. And the word gets out, which apparently isn't hard to do, they're the only ones standing up. <laughs> that the, King, there are three of those captives that you brought here that you thought you were going to make into Babylonians. Well, they're still Hebrew, and look, they will not bow down. And King Nebuchadnezzar calls them forward, displeased with their rebellion but their rebellion is not rebellion they're very honorable to the king but when the law of the land conflicts with the law of the lord who do they choose the lord and notice their answer he's going to give them a second chance by the way look at verse 15 now if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn the flute the harp the lyre and the psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music and you fall down and worship the image which i have made good but if you do not worship What's the central issue here? Worship. If you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And notice this. Blasphemous language. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? (laughs) I love their answer. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, still very respectful, very kind, but very clear. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Fiery furnace or not, our God is greater than you. But if not, look at verse 18. If not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, 
nor will we worship the gold image that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar didn't like it. Verse 19, the Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression of his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't know what it looked like when he was unhappy, but now he's full of fury and it was distorted. He was just writhing with anger. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And I'll be honest with you, if I'm going to be burned to death, I won't want it on low heat. Right? If we're going to do this thing, let's just do it, right? But notice he's ramping up the pressure. And notice what happens here. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments and were cast in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. 22 is fascinating. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Doesn't mention Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego getting hurt. In fact, it says here in verse 23, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound in the midst of the fiery furnace. If the story ended there, we would have a story of, oh, at least they were faithful even unto death. And we'd say, praise God for their faithfulness. But God does not leave his servants alone who love him and keep his commandments. Notice this now. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? Notice he has two problems. How many men were there? Three. And in what condition were they? Bound. But he says, I see some things differently now. They answered and said to the king, true, O king. Look at verse 25. Look, he answered, I see what? Four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Friends, if you stand up to faith for faithfulness in Jesus Christ, he will stand by your side every step of the way. This story of Daniel chapter 3 is told to us as a preview of what's to come when we look at Revelation chapter 13. There's an image that will be set up. It will be true versus counterfeit worship. It will be the God of heaven versus the God of this world. It will be the Jesus Christ versus the Antichrist. And the demonstration of loyalty is not going to be a tattoo or a mark or a credit card. It's going to be, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I promise you, there are going to be opportunities to doubt. Say, oh, I don't know, Lord. I don't know if I can keep that commandment. Everybody else is doing. Or I've always done. Or, but it's so appealing. Or the other way, instead of the carrot, what if the stick? What if I, if I, if I choose to keep your commandment, I might lose my job or my friends or my... Let me tell you something. The only safe place for those three men that day was in the fiery furnace. Because that's where loyalty to God demanded they go, and as they walked, who was by their side? Jesus Christ. That same Jesus will be by your side every step of the way when you decide to love him and keep his commandments, regardless of what the rest of the world says. I don't care how deceptive, how alluring, or how imposing it might be, God has said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Let me ask a question. 
Can you raise your hand if tonight's message has been clear? Praise God. My appeal is the same as it was several nights ago. Go home and pray. Lord, is there anything that would stand between me and faithfulness to your law? Is there any inducement that might draw me away, any temptation, any distraction, any discouragement, any whatever the hindrance might be? Say, Lord, I want to, I do love you. I want to keep your commandments. And I've been shown very clearly from the word of God that your Sabbath is something to remember, though the whole world and Satan himself says forget. God says remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Friends, if you want to make that commitment, again, I'm not going to be asking for an appeal tonight. You don't have to come down front. But I do want you to go home and pray. Say, Lord, what is there between you and me? Now that I know the truth, am I willing to walk in it? Regardless of whether there's a fire or not, Lord, I just want to hold your hand. And if you're with me, I'm willing to go. That's my appeal. So think about it. Pray about it. And this coming Sabbath, keep the Sabbath holy. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who walks with us regardless of what happens here, regardless of what Satan might throw at us, regardless of what the world might say, that when we are faithful to you, you are faithful to us. Lord, help us to be your people. Help us to be sealed with the seal of the living God. Mark us as yours. And help our profession of Christianity to be manifested in a demonstration of fidelity to your word that we love you and that we are willing to keep your commandments. Bless us now, Lord, as we walk away from this place tonight. Bring us back safely tomorrow night, of course. But Lord, in the quiet of this moment and those moments to come, I would ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to each person here. If there's anything between us and you, Lord, show us where we're wrong. Give us the power to overcome and help us to live a life of renewed loyalty to you. For we want to be your people. We want you to be our God. We pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org